Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. What are values? Values are principles by which we live. And evidently, as we look at America at this moment, we see that we're in desperate, desperate trouble because of what? And we could say that there is a failure in our families, single families, whole families, to teach, to model values, values, traditional values. Now, you have in school curriculums, that's a hidden term for teaching our children political correctness. The truth is children thrive when they grow up in a stable home. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young shares the rest of his message, Thou shalt provide stability and security with more proven truth from God's Word to help you build a strong and stable foundation for the rest of a child's life. The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young begins in a moment. Now here's Dr. Ed Young with today's message, Family Values. We're going to get bad news. You leave, you say, that was a bad news sermon. It's going to be bad news all the way through. But we had two other weeks as we talk about parental guidance, and we'll shift from bad news to good news and for practical ways that you and I can build a healthy family in the 21st century. So just stay with me with the bad news because you got to have bad news all before you can ever have good news in the first place. Our scripture is bad news that fits the bad news we're going to be talking about. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Jeremiah Chapter 17, I'll begin reading with verse 9, then I'll skip and read to verse 13 following. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? King James Version, the heart is wicked, deceptively evil. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man or woman according to his or her ways, according to the results of his deeds. Verse 13, all who forsake you, that's the Lord, will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down. Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, O Lord, and I will be saved. I'm going to ask everybody to lift your hands in the air, if you would, everybody. Hold your hands straight up. Look up. Repeat after me. Heal me, O Lord. And I will be healed. Save me, O Lord, Lord. and I will be saved. saved. Put your hands down. And as I am teaching, 
When you see me lift your hands, I want everybody to lift your hands just like you did then. And we will pray that once again as a worshiping family. See if you remember. Everybody, heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, O Lord, and I will be saved. Our Heavenly Father, we lift up our voices and our minds and our lives to you. Meet with us today, and when we leave this place, may we remember one thing. We have been with Jesus. Speak through your word. Let me get out of the way is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Two families lived side by side for over 20 years. They, they were as close as, as I am to that column. Children about the same age, same economic condition, little gravel driveway between the two little houses. Children went to the same church, same school, listened to the same music, played together until they got to be in their teenagers, were intimate friends. Two families side by side. Any sociologist would study this family and that family. They would say, you know, they're almost identical. But the outcome of one family, and I know both of these families intimately, was absolute disaster. Child after child, son and daughter, Lives that would break the heart of anyone. Disaster, tragedy, poor choices, disease, violence, criminals, one family. You read about that family, you would say, I I've just never heard of anything quite as tragic as this. The other family, their sons and daughters, my goodness, magnificent. Everyone almost in a ratio Alger story. Man, how they made good choices, how they married the right person, and the grandchildren came up, and all the legacy left behind of joy and fun and celebration and worship. Just a fabulous mom and dad and children and grandchildren, and, and that family, you'd say, boy, that's a family. I would like for my family to be like that family. Boy, what a tremendous outcome. Two families, side by side, economically, socially, educationally, vocationally, any way you look at them, all alike, one outcome, chaos, another outcome, magnificent. What's the difference? Somewhere it boils down to family values. Family values. Somewhere it comes back to parenting. Parenting. Now, you can talk to anybody in the Western world and you ask them, 
what needs to take place in our culture to change it from the mess in which we find ourselves right now in history. And they will tell you, well, we need a, a return to family values. The left will say that. The right will say that. The middle will say that. Anthropologists will say that. Sociologists will say that. Counselors will say that. Everybody, theologians will say, we need to return to family values. And some people even put in traditional family values. Every politician, every person in public life, every person in every endeavor will tell you, oh, yes, we need to return to traditional family values. Now, the problem becomes, and when you begin to ask what values, where do you get those values? Whose values do we teach, do we live by? And then if you really want to get into a maze, look up in any scholarly work or look up in Mr. Webster a definition for value in the ethical sense, and you run into all kinds of definitions. In fact, I've just sort of written one for myself. What are values? Values are principles by which we live, my definition. Principles by which we live. And evidently, as we look at America at this moment, we see that we're in desperate, desperate trouble because of what? Where are we today? Why is it that 135,000 high school students every day carry a concealed weapon with them to school? Why is that? Why is it that 48% of those who teach in junior high and high schools, our wonderful teachers, are contemplating leaving the profession they were trained and the profession they love because they are afraid of their students and they cannot keep order in the class in order to impart information. Why is that? Why do 24% of our boys and girls from the first grade to the senior year try to go the entire day in school without going to the restroom because of fear they'll be molested or embarrassed? Why is that? And we could go on and on. And we could say that there is a failure in our families, single families, whole families, to teach, to model values, values, traditional values. Now, you have in school curriculums values clarification. Now, that sounds good. You know, my son, my daughter's taking values clarification. That's a hidden term for teaching our children political correctness. So don't buy that bill of goods. And so the debate is there right now in the public arena. Whose values? What values? Where do they come from? Now let me do something that is foolish and bold. Exceedingly foolish and exceedingly bold. I'm going to try to trace through Western civilization the transmission of values from the first century all the way till today.
Now, I don't want someone to say, well, you left out. Well, hello, how long would you like to be here today? <laughs> to trace the transmission of values from the first century all the way to today. Here we go. From the first century for a hundred of years, no one doubted of any significance where you get values, where you get ethics, where you get what is right or wrong. You look up, that's where you get it. You look up to God. You look up to transcendence because values were absolute. Now, people did not follow them perfectly. There was some little minor debate, but nobody of significance really doubted where the source of values were. What was right and what was wrong, that was not in the discussion. The Jews looked to the Old Testament, the Torah, there's values. Christians looked to the New Testament and the early church taught by Jesus, the Paul and Peter, etc. there is values. Even the philosophers, the Greek or Roman world, they looked at natural law and said by the givenness of creation and nature, you can see transcendent values that come from the Almighty. So you have hundreds of years from the first century forward that it was built into Western civilization, what was right and what was wrong. You look up, and that's where you got values, ultimate meaning, and principles of life. And that is what you would teach and transfer from generation to generation with enthusiasm and with confidence that if these values were lived out, that life would make a difference and the whole society would move in the right and proper and godly direction for hundreds of years. We, we came up with that, so many of us. All the myths that we would read, they had a hero and a heroine. All the folklore had heroes and heroines. And we were familiar with all the Bible stories a couple of generations ago, the parable of the prodigal son, the greatest story ever told, by the way. The Good Samaritan, oh, we, that was a part of the culture, part of the vocabulary. The parables of Jesus, those little piffy stories that had a Bam, a punch right in the middle of the morality and what was right and what was wrong. That was a part. What we read, our parents would read nursery rhymes to us. They had moral principles. We had heroes and we had heroines. And a lot of them were biblical in Moses and Joseph. And same, we would read these. And that was a part. It was inculcated. It was taught. It was passed on. That was the culture for hundreds and hundreds of years in Western civilization until the 18th century. The so-called enlightenment. When there were a group of scholars who said, you do not get values by looking up. That's not where you get values. You get values by looking within. Let me present three of these scholars. Listen carefully. Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant said, you don't look up. You look within, and you decide what is right and what is wrong, what your ethics are, what you do and what you do not do by looking to your mind. You can figure it out. You're a human being. Just Think it through. Look all the premises down. 
You can decide and you'll come out right every single time if you simply use your mind. Look to your mind. And so that was proposed, that was written about there in the 18th century. You say, well, what does all this have to do with us? Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. If you hadn't figured out yet, what is in the classroom today will be on the streets in just a few years. Don't forget that. So these are just ancient philosophers. Oh, no. Oh, no. Stay with me. That was the beginning of rationalism. Look to your mind. That's where you find values and ethics and what's right and what's wrong. Then another guy came along, Rousseau. Rousseau came to the picture, and Rousseau said, you know, Kant is right. You don't look up to transcendent values from the almighty or, or biblical values that are written down. He said, you don't look up. Man, that's, that's old-fashioned. We are enlightened. But he said, don't really look to your mind to figure out what's right and wrong. He said, look to your heart, your passions. If it feels good, it must be okay. You heard that? It must be all right. Look to your heart. And, and Rousseau taught that a child was born, a baby was born with a pure heart, a beautiful heart, a clean heart. And parents and others that try to influence that child, corrupt that child, just let that child express themselves all the way through the years all the way through and just let them go the way they want to go using their emotions and their feelings and their heart and it will be a pure rose that will be formed a beautiful life that's what Rousseau taught modern education somebody said Rousseau didn't have any children <laughs> oh yeah he had four he had four by a peasant girl who was illiterate, and he systematically disinherited all four of them because of their lives. Follow your heart. Don't look up. Look within. Don't look at your mind, but look at your heart. Look at your feelings, and this is romanticism. Then the third guy came along. Frederick Nietzsche came along. He said, I'll tell you here. But the 17th century is not right. In the 18th century, Nietzsche, he came along and pushed us to another area. He said, look to your will to decide what's right and wrong. And he talked about the Superman, or the German said the overman, the Superman, the superwoman. To decide what's right and wrong, you just assert yourself. You just show your muscles. That's how you decide. And might makes right. This was the philosophy of Adolf Hitler. He was a Nietzsche follower down to the core. And Hitler adopted the, the saying that you'll see on your screen of Nietzsche. Look at it. The strong have the right to rule any way they see fit. It is might makes right. And it is the doctrine of perfectionism. If you assert yourself, you decide what you want. If you're strong enough to get your way and to do it, that makes it all right. See, I didn't break any law. That's what the German criminals at Nuremberg said. I didn't break any German law. I just used the might of the Third Reich. So you have these three guys saying, hey, don't look up, look within, 
Look at your mind, rationalism. Look at your heart, romanticism. Look at your will, perfectionism, the superman, the superwoman, and you decide. And you see Nietzsche. You see all of these philosophers, their seeds have been spread all the way through our culture. Talk to somebody who's a humanist. Talk to somebody who's away from God and away from the church. They ask them how they determine what is right and wrong. They say, well, I just, I just use my mind. And, you know, I just follow my emotions. You know, if I can get away with it and do it and nobody finds out, man, I'll just assert my will, right? What is the results of this? I don't know about you, but my moral compass is broken. I will confess that to you. My moral compass is broken. I look to my mind. I look to my feelings. I look to my strength. All of that and decided ethics, what's right and wrong, my compass is broken. And ladies and gentlemen, your compass is broken too. And the compass of America is broken too. And we are in a catastrophic mess. You see the erosion of adopting portions of this kind of thinking that's taught in our colleges and universities and some high schools all across America. It has come down to us today, and we see the rationale of where we are in our culture, in our America. It comes right down to this, right down to this moment. It was a gradual thing, you know, erosion. It was gradual. And it went all the way, you know, we could see a little decline into the 1960s and 1970s. Some of us remember, have read about Haight-Ashbury, a little section of outside of San Francisco, 1960s. The summer of love, remember it? The summer of love. Free drugs, free love, free food. Man, over 100,000 young people gathered there in Haight-Ashbury. Man, let the good times roll. It's party 24-7. Oh, that was it. And the music was the Beatles. All oh, the Beatles, oh, man. And John Lennon became a superhero of the culture of love. But notice what his son wrote about John when he had left the family, his initial family, and it began to live with his mistress, Ono, and look what his son wrote about him, Julian Lennon. He said, how can you talk about peace and love and have a family in bits and pieces, no communication, adultery, divorce, you can't do it, not if you're being true and honest with yourself. He was a hypocrite. Dad could talk about peace and love out loud to the world, but he could not show it to the people who supposedly meant the most to him, his wife and son, Julian Lennon, who was abandoned by his father, John Lennon, when he was five years old. Be careful who we honor in the music world, in the political world, in the religious world, in the business world. Who in the world would think America would look to a Donald Trump as some kind of model in the business community because he happens to be worth a billion dollars? What kind of egotistical model do we have before us? Where are the heroes? Where are the heroines? Oh, it just continues to slide 
Look at a study recently by UCLA, no citadel of conservatism. They, they, they surveyed teenagers from 1997 to 2007. In 1997, teenagers, and they surveyed thousands of them, incidentally. This was the order of values, priorities in their life. Community feeling, benevolence, image, tradition, self-acceptance. Ten years later, look at our teenagers. What's their order? Fame, oh, achievement, popularity, image, financial success. What happened in 10 years to our teenagers? YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, social media. All of a sudden, all the values of our kids were turned right side up because mom and dad basically were asleep because dad says, man, I want to be a corporate man, a company man. And he strives and he works and he neglects the wife and children and give them the leftover of their time. And then when he reaches some kind of area of success in his chosen field when he's 40 or 50, he looks back and said, oh, I would give everything I have if I could go back and have time with my kids and not neglect them as I did. We don't need more company men. We need more family men. And let's just bring this up to speed so we'll understand where we are in America today. As we now no longer look up, we look within. Oh, I'll think it through. I'll feel it through. I'll power my way through. Look what's happened in recent news. Look on your screens. The Boston Marathon bombing. By the way, we have a wonderful member of our church who was one of the tragedies there. Her son was slightly injured. She was at the finish line. She, only three days ago, they took her in, I think for the third time, anticipating amputating her leg from the knee down. She's a member of this campus and her parents are members of this campus right here. She was right there in Boston watching a friend run. But we prayed and my last report two days ago, somehow the doctors got in there for the third or fourth time, and they thought they would this time take the leg off from somewhere below the knee, but thank God the infection was healed. And we'll be hearing from her and the story there of God working in her mother and dad who are part of this church and her life and her daughter, et cetera. We'll hear from them in days to come. Parenthetically, in the Boston situation, I'm just amazed at the super ignorance of our law enforcement people. Let me tell you something. If I were in charge, I would do something immediately. I would pass laws that any time we have a terrorist like we have in captivity today who has a radical faith that he has demonstrated, I would immediately send every member of his family who are in America back where they came from, whether they were citizens or not. 
I would take every person who has associated with him or is a part of that radical belief, regardless of what they said, and I would also send them home packing. You see what has happened in this radical kind of so-called religion. What has happened is when a terrorist bombs and destroys people here, they reward their family abroad for their courage and for their belief and for their faith. We somehow have to return some fire. What this will do? You say, what will that do? No, no, it will do one thing. Hopefully that the families of those who are here who see a member of the family being radicalized will say, hey, son, you had better straighten up. It's going to affect every single one of us. I think that might be a little bitty deterrent that we could put in practice. That's, that's parenthetical. What is going on? Jody Arias, look at her, convicted of brutally murdering her boyfriend. She just stabbed him 27 times and virtually cut off his head and shot him for good measure. What kind of thing is that? Eight-year-old Leo Fowler was fatally shot by her 12-year-old brother. 19 people shot by a teenager. Mother's Day parade in New Orleans. Convicted cop killer Jeffrey Williams executed. Dallas area Bank of America robbed twice by two brothers. You want more? Let's bring it right up to speed. Look at it. Sunday, May the 11th, a man was shot outside a washeteer on West Road. Monday, May 13th, right of the date, a Houston A-Leaf boy comes home from school to find all three family members shot in his home. Thursday, May 16th, man found shot to death outside a Houston hotel. Thursday, May 16th, three men robbed a man as he unloaded groceries in the driveway in Sugarland. Thursday, May 16th, a Houston teenage girl was charged with murder of a man she doused with gasoline and burned alive. And I wanted to go through some of this. And I hope you'd say, stop. Hey, I've got enough. I get it. Hold back. I can't take anymore. You see, we don't listen much to this news. It just overwhelms us. It's too big for us. We can't put our arms around it. We have no understanding of it. And I wanted to go down and down and down and down, and I could do it all afternoon. You know I could, one after another after another, to finally we'd say, enough, enough. I didn't even have to get into the area that was not reported of the little six-year-old girl who was taken by some little older boys, five, six, and seven, and held in a garage for two hours and molested, and her daddy says, I hate this. I hate those kids. I hate their parents. I hate this. What have they done to my little girl? And those kind of things are not reported. Heal me, O Lord, and I will be healed. Save me, O Lord, and I will be saved. Let me introduce you to two fathers. Some of you know them. Let's look at them at a different light than maybe you have ever seen them before. First Samuel, we have a father by the name of Eli. 
Eli was a prophet, was a priest. He's an old man. He has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And someone came to Eli in this passage and says, Eli, your sons are sleeping with women in the house of worship. Somebody had to tell Eli that. These sons are grown men. Eli goes to his sons, and look what this says in verse 25, let apart. But they would not listen to the voice of their father. His old man didn't know the condition of his own sons. He'd been so busy doing good, fine, wonderful things in his calling, in his vocation, and now he spoke to them, and they did not listen to the words of their father. Is it any wonder? I'll introduce you to another father in Scripture, a man by the name of Mordecai. He was a stepfather, incidentally. And Esther, his stepdaughter, whom he nurtured and loved and modeled and taught the ways of God, she is now queen of the land. Beautiful, wonderful, reigning queen of the land. And now she has a chance to do something for God and for God's people. And Mordecai went to her and look at the latter part of Esther chapter number 2, verse number 20. For Esther did what Mordecai bid her as she had come, as she had done when under his care. Esther listened to Mordecai, though she was a grown woman in a high position. Eli, sons didn't pay any attention to him. He hadn't built the right stuff in those boys. He turned his back on them. He must have looked within and let them look within and determine their own destiny. Mordecai had built the right stuff in Esther, and Mordecai gave counsel, and she listened to Mordecai just like she had when she was brought up in that home. As a stepfather, he disciplined her and loved her. What a difference. What a difference. Now, I want to show you something that I didn't pick up on until Saturday, yesterday. Look back at our scripture. This will stagger you. Our scripture, Jeremiah chapter 17, look at verse 20. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Huh. He's already said the heart is deceitful, deceptively wicked. Who can know it? We'll agree with that. Your heart, my heart. Then he says, I search the heart. The heart. I mean, people who make decisions with their heart and their feelings, Jeremiah is talking about the same thing that, oh, we've already looked at him. That's what Rousseau was talking about, wasn't it? You get your morals and your ethics by your heart. Oh, Jeremiah predated Rousseau. Oh. Look at the next verse. I test the mind, says the Lord. Oh, me. It seems like Jeremiah has predated Kant, who said, the way you get your ethics is look at your mind, rationalism. Oh, he'd already anticipated that. Oh, and look at the rest of the verse. It says, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Well, that sounds like Nietzsche. Oh, I just assert myself. I decide what is right by my own power. Isn't it something? Right there in our verse, 
God has already dealt with the rationalism, the romanticism, and with the absolutely demonic idea of asserting your own life and living it out your own way. He's already dealt with it in our scripture. And look at the answer. Now the verse comes alive that we read in our scripture. Look what he says. Verse 13, all who forsake you will be put to shame. All who look within and do not look up will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down. Now you get it. Because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. And then we have the climactic verse. And it is, heal me, O Lord, that I might be healed. Save me, O Lord, that I might be saved. Pray it again. Look up. Heal me, O Lord, that I might be healed. Save me, O Lord, that I might be saved. Our Heavenly Father, this is our prayer for America. This is our prayer for our lives. This is our prayer for our homes. This is our prayer for our families. Forgive us when we have been gobbled up and swallowed whole in a broken culture. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.